It's June 20th, 2023. Welcome to the Pro Photography Podcast. I'm Gavin Syme, and today we're going to talk about why your photos suck, mine too, and how to fix it. Welcome to the New Web Pro Photography Podcast, where we talk about what's new, what's old, and what works for professional and enthusiast photographers. Find show notes, videos, and more at simonfx.com slash podcast. Okay, everybody, welcome back to the show. It's been a week or two. I think we're doing pretty good. I'm trying to keep on a two-week schedule, but uh, sometimes doing a little extra here and there. Things are bustling and exploding all over the photography world. We have a couple of interesting topics. I have some cool things in the photo news nuggets that I want to get your guys' take on as well. So as you're listening to this, make sure you head over to profotoshow.com to find the latest show notes for this June 20th episode. And also I will put a link in there where you can go over to this episode's conversation on the Photography Shadow Hunters group on Facebook if you prefer that. But you can also leave a comment, okay? This episode is always as brought to you by SimeFX photo editing tools and workshops. Those are my own workshops that keep me going. The presets, the actions, things like Loomist and Silver and Blackroom and the new Streetist. You can check all those out over at SimeFX.com. I won't belabor the point. You guys see those often demonstrated in my videos on my YouTube channel and things like that. And as always, you can find links in the show notes. Let's get into the photo news nuggets. And there's a few things that caught my eye this week. By the way, you guys can always send an email to profotoshow at gmail.com with any feedback and news that you think we should be covering here on the podcast. One is I saw an article over on Petapixel talking about this, this hybrid instant camera that... Leica apparently has filed a patent for. And so the idea is that Leica will be coming out with this hybrid instant, which is kind of inconsistent with the Leica brand, right? This kind of almost toy kind of camera, but not really. And there's a couple links I'll lead to this. There's been some leaked stuff, and it's basically along the lines of like the Fuji Instax cameras. So why would Leica make this? I'll tell you why I think Leica would make this. Obviously, we see Leica and Zeiss, like these branded things, even in cell phone cameras, and sometimes they're good, and sometimes they're just slapping a brand on there to take advantage of that brand recognition. But what I see happening is we're seeing a strong resurgence of these different analog methods. I actually have an original Polaroid SX70. I also have a few Fuji Instax things, but the Fuji Instax cameras generally are kind of plasticky. Uh, some of the Instax printers are fun, but then you're still just kind of using it as a printer that you pay more for, even though they are chemically processed instant photos. And the Fuji does do a good job. They have the, the mini, the square, and the wide. Fuji has a severe lack of real cameras. And what we're seeing is this trend of these kind of hybrid cameras that are taking a digital photo and the printer is basically just built in. I'm not a huge fan of this. It is a fun way for people to take photos when you want to take a digital photo and then pay 10 times more to print it. Now, I know I'm being a little critical. It's just kind of like the obvious truth, even though when you actually play with these digitally printed Instaxes and things like that, they are fun, right? I actually have an Instax mini printer that I'll use occasionally just for fun with my Fuji cameras or if I'm doing a project where I want to give somebody something instantly. In the same size format for more fun prints, I also have a 
Kodak Mini 2 Retro, a P210R, which prints approximately the same size photos, but in the thermal kind of three-layer color printer. I also have one of the 4x6 versions of that, which is like the Canon Selfie 1500 or something along those lines. And I will put links to all the current models of these in the show notes. And if you guys want to check them out, you can go there. And if you click the links there, you can click the Amazon links and I get a small kickback for recommending it to you. But what I'm getting at with all of these is through the years, we've seen these different kind of compact portable printers. The ones that do the kind of thermal paper and they have this ribbon, right? So you don't have to put an ink cartridge in them. It makes them very portable. They don't dry up. They're pretty cool, but the print quality is good, but usually not amazing. What you're seeing with these actual chemical instant prints that are Polaroid styled kind of prints is you're getting chemical prints and they have a feel to them. But I would much rather see companies like Leica, like Fuji start making higher quality cameras, not hybrids. If I want to shoot a digital camera, I can shoot with my phone because honestly, these hybrid cameras are usually lower quality than your phone and certainly lower quality than your X100, your Canon, your Sony, not even close. So I'd rather, like if I'm going to have a camera that's digital, I'd rather shoot with a digital camera that I know and I know maintains my quality standards versus something shooting at super low res to print a two-inch print. That way, if I get a good photo, I have it, right? On the other hand, if I want to shoot film, and I do enjoy shooting film, I'm studying and experimenting with film all the time so that I can get the film look when I'm not using film, and I do that to study my filmist presets. We do a lot of research here in terms of how do we get this looking just right. I can't say how many hours I spent in the Gen 2 of the Portra series films to get those dialed in and right so I can take my digital file and get that look consistent. But I also like shooting the real films. The problem we're facing, especially this year, is film is through the roof, right? A box of 4 by 5 sheet film that would have cost me 30 or $40 six or seven years ago is now over $100. i am paying 20 to $25 a roll for things like Ektar and Portra. Obviously, it depends on where you buy them and how you buy them. Then you get to instant films, and you have things like Polaroid 600. You have Instax. I use, if I'm doing getting serious with instant film, is that a word, serious with instant film? I actually do love shooting Polaroid, but a lot of the films and stuff aren't available. I have the SX-70. I'll put a photo of that SX-70 or a video in the show notes, because if you've never seen that camera, it is the coolest, well, it's arguably the coolest Polaroid camera to ever exist. And it was made in like the 60s, 70s era, all metal, fold up. It's actually an SLR style. This one has a sonar autofocus. It was the first ever autofocus system long before Canon and Nikon were doing autofocus. And you can also manual focus it. It doesn't have all the manual controls for exposure and stuff of modern cameras. So you can put SX-70 film in this. It runs $20, $25 for a pack of eight, right? That's 2 or $3 a shot. Now, there is something to be said for this. Obviously, I'm not saying, oh, I'm switching to Polaroid, but the Polaroid color film sometimes lacks when it comes to color. Fuji, I think, actually does a better job, but Polaroid films are still Polaroid films. The SX-70 black and white film is actually very beautiful, and I've been taking some portraits on that because there is kind of a magical aesthetic. I'm going to put a couple of these in the show notes to show you scans of my SX-70 black and whites. I don't know if that'll quite come through of like the depth that you get in the real world, but they kind of have this old 
large formatty kind of feel to them. You're not going to get that natural organic feel when you have an instant film inside a digital camera. So it's just taking a digital file, you select it and say, yeah, I like this, and it prints it. At that point, it's just a printer, which is fun, but does seem a little silly. I want to know what you guys think about this. One thing, the SX70 camera doesn't take... You can put a cartridge of Polaroid 600, which is a higher ISO, right? The SX70 is a low ISO. It's almost like using a large format camera. I have to really have my light in order, hold still, pose, take my time, um, because it doesn't handle any low light, right? It will doesn't have good dynamic range. Like, you really have to dial it in. Because of that, I actually enjoy shooting the SX-70, because like shooting film, it's faster, you get the instant gratification, but not only is it expensive, I have to put a lot of thought, like I'm really thinking about, I only have eight photos in this pack and it costs me $25, I'm going to make sure I'm thinking it through, I'm not going to waste these, and it's the same when you shoot film, right, you may have noticed if you shoot film, you tend to get better photos, and it's because you know that cost, you know that it's something organic that you're using up, and you focus more. And it is a great exercise, and it's fun. I don't want to go too deep into that. I'll put a link to this Leica, and I think they're just kind of jumping on the bandwagon and putting Leica branding on this. We'll see what comes out with this. What I really think we need to see is more serious cameras. I would love a Fuji Instax Square Hasselblad back, right? That was not like just like a made-in-someone-shop kind of experiment, but actually something with a reasonable price that I could use. That would be really cool. Because I could take my vintage Hasselblad that I got from my late mentor, Ken Whitmire, and put that on there, and it, it would be amazing. Obviously, you get way more amazing images when you expose on instant if you're using high-quality lenses and stuff like that versus these plastic, more or less, toys. I won't belabor this point. Let's move on with the next subject that caught my eye in the news, and that was that almost all photos are now taken on smartphones, okay? And Instagram alone... I, I, this number, I found this kind of hard to believe. Instagram alone is seeing 1.3 billion images a day shared in one form or another. 1.3 billion with a B. I'm curious, in this, in this research, not over 90% were taken with smartphones. Now I can believe that, right? This, this is the exact opposite of what I just talked about with the Instax. It's so easy to take photos. We take a lot. We don't care. Now, do I get some good photos on a phone? I, this year, I upgraded to the S23 Ultra. I stopped using iOS devices uh, a few years ago because I just got tired of the irreparability, being locked in, the anti-consumer tactics. I know a lot of you guys out there use iPhones, and, and don't get me wrong, they're, they're great. iPhone and Samsung are neck and neck, and they just kind of bounce off each other. Competition's good, right? But I have enjoyed using Android. The things I can do with a smartphone are amazing. We don't, I don't need to belabor that too much because you probably know, but if you get a high quality premium smartphone, you do get photos. You can shoot raw. I can shoot in pro video mode. If you watch my YouTube channel, uh, my main cuts, I'm usually shooting on a quote real camera like my Sony A7 series or one of my, my Fuji X-T3, something like that. But most of the B-roll now, and that's one of the reasons I upgraded this year, I can shoot quality b-roll on a mobile and you're probably not noticing the difference even at night which is pretty amazing like we've really just crossed that line in the past you know i could shoot a situation on the street i could talk on the at night and be like oh my tire blew or or i'm filming something that's happening at an event but i wouldn't consistently go to my phone as my b-roll camera i would take out like 
a Sony RX 105 or something like that. I don't need to do that much anymore because now it has come to the point where for B-roll on video, I can do it. The photos, they're still snapshots to me. Do I get some good ones? Yes. When I go out to restaurants and they plate my food really nice, I do a little mini session with the food. I edit it in Lightroom Mobile and I get these amazing looking results and then I upload them with a review as it's kind of like, it's kind of like my tip. You know, sure, I'll leave a tip for the server, but really it's my tip to the restaurant owner for doing a good job, for having great service. And those Google reviews, of course, get way more attention than all the other ones because I've actually put eight, 10 photos that are really beautiful, high quality. I'll throw a couple examples of those food photos I do from a phone in the show notes as well, just to show you how good of results I'm getting. But my phone photos are still photos for me because if I take a really good photo, I want to be able to print it and blow it up, but they're getting there. So is it bad that all photos are taken on smartphones? We've seen, and this goes all the way back to the early 2000s in the original Pro Photo Show 1.0, where we talked about how digital was taking down the value of photography because everybody's doing it. AI is now coming to do the same thing again. But as I've mentioned, will AI actually bring value back to true photography? Actually make people want evidence, right? No, no, no. We want to see that you were there taking the photo. Where's the video? of you standing there taking the photo? Where is the evidence that this is real? And I think even though lots of people will be faking things with AI and calling it photography, even though it's not, people won't believe anymore. And the standard of people wanting to see something real is actually going to be increased. Okay, so carrying on in that, so carrying on to the next news nugget, speaking of AI, there's this story that is actually a couple months old now, but I think it connects to all this, and we haven't discussed it on the podcast, was this artist, Boris Eldagsen. He won this Sony World Photography Award in the open competition with this vintage-looking photo, and only after he won did he came out and say, this is not a photo, it was AI-generated. The idea was he wanted to prove a point, and he said... I'm rejecting this award because this isn't a photo, it's AI-generated, and essentially his thought is, you know, he thinks there should be separate categories. If something's AI, there should be an AI category for art, and there should be a photography category for art, which, which I have no problem with. There's nothing wrong with using whatever modern tools are available to make photos, right? Obviously, when the photography came out, the painters who we inherited the profession from, and we can still learn a lot from today, but a lot of the painters scoffed at photography as just being, you know, like a mechanical thing. It wasn't real art. This is going to happen with AI as well, but I think what's important is distinguishing between them. Fakery is not okay. Saying, look, I took this photo of this beautiful landscape in northern Canada. Most of the people of the world aren't going to know that it's not real. And when you're just lying to get attention, that's the issue that I have. Now, when I look at this, I do have to ask who the judges were, because the first thing I see when I look at this is either an AI photo or uh, AI like Photoshop restored vintage photo, and it, it completely doesn't look real to me. And if I were to see it as a judge, and I have done uh, professional level photo judging, my alarm bells would start going off, especially in this day and age. But I think it's a, it's actually a good exercise that he kind of threw this controversy into this. First of all, what, why aren't the judges paying attention? But AI is going to the point where 
at a glance, you will not be able to tell the difference. And I think it's important that we start setting standards for that. As always, I will link this in the show notes as well. And you can look at this photo and see what you think. And speaking of mobile devices, another piece of news that caught my attention, and I think this is our last news for the week, and that is the new Capture One app is finally on iPhone. And you might be saying like, wait, Capture One mobile app didn't work on iPhone before. No, it only worked on iPad. Like, not only is it not available on Android, it wasn't available on iPhone. Uh, now you can get it on iPhone and iPad. Now, I do a review every year, and I have for a few years, of Lightroom versus Capture One. And if you read this article on Engadget, it says Capture One, the increasingly popular Lightroom alternative, is available in the App Store now. You have to pay an extra subscription. Okay, so I do a review every year on Lightroom versus Capture One. Lightroom One, hands down, this year, and I we go through and we we look at what people say, like oh, Light Folk Capture One's better on Fuji cameras. There's less worms, and so I do that test. I actually have an annual review of of worms and noise testing of Lightroom versus Capture One. That's usually a separate video. I will link both of those videos in the show notes so that you can review them and leave your comments and opinions on this. But the bottom line is that this year, Lightroom with all its AI tools came out vastly ahead. It's noise reduction, especially the new AI noise reduction is now vastly ahead in every way that it can I can practically test. And I've been using both for many years and I develop for both because I make my preset packs for Lightroom as well as for Capture One at the same time. So I'm actively in both of these apps, pushing them to their limits, okay? And I'm, I'm comfortable in both of these apps. I know both of these apps. And for my own personal editing, I usually come back to Lightroom because Capture One costs more. I have to pay for it anyhow because, you know, I'm, I'm using it, I'm testing it, I'm developing for it. Uh, Capture One is double or more the price than Lightroom and Photoshop combined. You don't you don't get the the layer editing Photoshop features, and no, I'm not counting Capture One's layers because Lightroom has layers with its masks as well that are actually more powerful than Capture One's now. That used to be the big advantage of Capture One; it no longer has that. The layers are actually kind of primitive and limited by the standards if we compare them to what Lightroom can do with its AI tools. And people are paying for the Capture One subscription now. Earlier this year was at the end of last year, they basically nerfed and defunct their perpetual license, right? So people, the other big thing is, oh, I can buy Capture One outright. I don't have to pay a subscription. Great. Well, now they've, they've it's still available, but basically not because you get no updates, even though you pay the, the full price and you pay a lot, um, you get no feature updates. So even if one little feature comes out, and to be fair, Capture One doesn't add features very quick, even for their subscribers, right? They're still miles behind on AI. But even if one feature comes out and you have the perpetual license, you have to pay full price all over again, even if it's only been a few months. So basically they they've said we don't want we don't want people buying perpetual license anymore, buy the subscription. And you can do that and pay about twice as much as Lightroom and Photoshop combined. By the way, Lightroom has the mobile app. And this is why this story caught my eye because like we're making hype about, oh, Capture One is now available as a mobile app. The Capture One mobile app is very limited. And this is the key difference is the Capture One mobile app is kind of like extension of the desktop app. Uh, and you can do a few things. The Lightroom mobile app is actually astounding. And while I usually am only editing my mobile photos with it, I can do 
amazing things, right? And I can load all my same presets. So I have my Filmus presets that I use in Lightroom Classic and on the desktop. I have my Streetus presets. I have my Mobi presets that I actually designed specifically for enhancing mobile photos. All of these things can live in both worlds. I can take a photo on the mobile, load it in Lightroom. It then becomes available on the Lightroom cloud version, which is on the desktop. They, they just call Lightroom or Lightroom CC, most of us call it. That's like the online cloud version. I don't use that for most edits. But what I can do is I have a folder in my Lightroom Classic, right? The desktop, desktop version. And I do all my main editing there. But I have a folder that synchronizes. So if I put in that collection, rather, that folder, if I have a certain folder that synchronizes, it synchronizes to the Lightroom Cloud version, which is available on the cloud version of the desktop. But consequently, all those photos, recent favorites, for example, regardless if they're, if they're taken on my RAW on my big cameras, those are now available on my phone. So I have the, not only have the portfolio there, I can do editing. I can have all the tools. And the amazing thing about the Lightroom Mobile is it has all the same tools of Lightroom Classic, which is kind of astounding in a mobile app. And it's come so far since the original Lightroom Mobile app years ago that was pretty limited. Lightroom Mobile is small. It's not the best working environment, but you can even do the masks and things like that. Virtually every feature that you're using in Lightroom Classic, you can use on Lightroom Mobile. And it's included in the price. So you can get Lightroom Mobile, Lightroom Classic, and Photoshop for 10 bucks a month. Do I love subscriptions? No. Ever since the subscription model first changed around the CS6 era, on uh, we talked about it here on Pro Photo Show, I was always against it. I didn't like it. I don't like being boxed in like that. It's just kind of life now. The whole world has gone this way. And Capture One has done the same thing. It's no, it's no longer really a feature. And you're not even going to get things like the mobile app. So by the time you get the mobile app and Capture One and you're, you're paying the subscription anyhow and you're paying two to three times as much and you still don't have Photoshop. So this is the realities that we're dealing with in 2021. Now, I've also done comparisons of Lightroom versus like Luminar AI. And it's a cool app, but it's it's still lacking in quite a few ways. And it still actually costs just as much or more than Lightroom and Photoshop combined. I want to hear what you're using. What caught my eye is, is when Engadget said the increasingly popular Lightroom alternative. This was kind of true a few years ago. A few years ago, there was a growth of Capture One. That's why I started developing more for Capture One, doing more videos on Capture One. And there was a distinct growth of Capture One because people were, were kind of getting sick of paying for Lightroom, right? Capture One had a perpetual license. Lightroom wasn't doing a lot of improvements in those days. Well, in the past couple of years with all these AI stuff, and when I say AI in Lightroom, I'm not talking about the AI image generation. I'm just talking about AI tools to help with noise, to help with selections, things like that. And I think those are just good tools. I, I implement those a lot in like the speed masks that I make that I talk about in my videos, uh, like my elegance presets. And you guys probably are doing the same thing. I did a poll seven months ago and said, hey, what are you going to be using in 2023? This is over on the YouTube channel. And Lightroom had 55 and then photo Camera Raw and Photoshop had another like 14%, right? So Adobe had like nearly 70% of the market share. Capture One was at 25%. This was seven months ago. A few months after that, Capture One basically came out with their new policy that screwed over perpetual license holders and basically just told the photography community, like, we don't care what you want. We don't care what you think. We're going to do what we want to make more money. And a lot of people were pissed because Capture One hasn't been releasing new features, right? Their annual new release has had very few improvements like we've seen with Lightroom new releases. And 
now with the perpetual license kind of gone, it's not a great value. Like, I know there's reasons that people like to use Capture One, but most of the reasons are actually not bearing out anymore when you do side-by-side -side testing. Most of those reasons, you know, like, oh, it's better for Fuji cameras. No, it's not. I'm an avid Fuji camera user. I've done a ton of testing. In fact, I think Lightroom at this point is probably doing a better job on Fuji cameras as well. Now, I know this is kind of uh, perception. You may have your preferences, and that's totally fine, right? If you're like, I love the Capture One interface. I love the color. It has a different approach. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not like a fanboy of either. And it may sound like I'm a little bit of a fanboy of Adobe, but I've always been super critical of Adobe, especially as the big dog holding them to really high standards. But they've been doing a lot with Lightroom in the past few years and really pushing the envelope. And so I haven't had a lot of negative to say, except for that Lightroom can be slow. Although I recently did a video on Lightroom speed and improving your Lightroom speed. I'll link that in the show notes as well, because I was being driven crazy with how slow things were in Lightroom, especially in some of the AI masking. And I said, we're going to solve this. And so I did. And then I made a video about it to show you guys. And I will link that over in the show notes. Anyways, I feel like I've belabored this a little bit too long and almost turned this into a Lightroom versus Capture One review because I think it is relevant if we're saying, oh, this Capture One has a new mobile app. Okay. But what's actually on the market right now that compares to that? And is that worth paying more for? Let me know in the comments what you guys think. And I won't be offended if, if you like Capture One and it's your favorite thing. That's totally fine. These are just the perceptions that I've had over this year's testing and previous year's testing. For the photo news nuggets, as usual, there was a lot to talk about. But let's get on now into the main topic for the day. And then I'm going to have a pick of the week for you. Let's talk about why your photos suck. And mine too, honestly. Not always, but sometimes. And some of today's things may go back to what I mentioned with that instant film and that's that process that we use when we know it costs us more. The cell phone generation, the digital generation, are we taking too many photos? But I'm going to give you some straight up tips that come from my journey and beating my head against the wall and studying with guys like Kim Whitmire and many others to get my master's in photography and try and, you know, get myself to a level where I could be like, okay, I'm winning the competitions now. I'm getting international merits from PPA. Not that that's the do all end all. Having a master's in photography, gone to going to a university of art or photography, it's not what makes you a great photographer. But I think as personal challenges, winning competitions, getting, you know, degrees and certifications are good personal challenges. And I think personal challenges help us push ourselves to be more. So let's get into why your photos suck. And when I say this, you might be a new photographer, you might be a veteran with 50 years of experience, and that's fine. And we're always talking about in my videos and in my Shadow Hackers workshop, there's a new Shadow Hackers workshop coming up that you don't want to miss. I've done lots of workshops in person, master video classes over the years. My Shadow Hackers is the currently free online workshop to really kind of bring all these threads together of things I've talked about over the years and definitely head over to the site over on simefx.com. I'll put a link to it in the show notes as well and sign up for my Shadow Hackers live online class because it'll take some of the things we're talking about today further for you. But let's get into why photos suck in the larger sense. It doesn't mean that you're a sucky photographer, but if we're honest with ourselves, we all have these moments, and I still have these 
after 20, 25 years of being a photographer where you go out and you shoot and you feel it, right? You're feeling something, you're feeling emotion, which is really important in photos. You have to have that emotion if you really want to connect with people. And you, you feel something and you come back and it's just not there. Whatever you felt didn't come through. And maybe it was the light, maybe it was the shadow, maybe it was something else. So the first thing, and I have about five points to point out of why we go out and take photos and we're like, these suck. This is not what I wanted. And the first is that you have no shadow mood. We have such a strong emphasis on light. And this is something the past few years, I've really shifted my teaching style to focus more on shadows because I think they're actually the harder, more difficult, less talked about thing than the light. Obviously, it's good to learn ratios and lighting patterns and all of this stuff. But without the shadow, you don't see the light. And this is something that you'll understand com more completely if you attend one of my Shadow Hackers classes. But it's really important. If, you, if you've ever gone out in like midday and tried to do street photography or a portrait session, the shadows are, are harsh. There's specular highlights everywhere. The shadows are all broken up. The light is all broken up. Whichever perspective you're looking at it from. You take a portrait of somebody in harsh sun. What's happening? Well, you have all this harsh light coming down from above. It's throwing big, ugly shadows under their eyes. Their face isn't really illuminated. It's kind of just it's illuminated, but more their hair and their shoulders because your light is coming down from above. Photography 101 is that we don't go out and shoot a, a portrait in unfiltered high noon sunlight. Does that mean you could never get a good photo in those conditions? No, you can get a good photo in any conditions, but you have to learn to use the elements around you. Usually that means finding a way to filter that light, go into a shade, but it's that bright light is bouncing off a white wall. And now you have this great fill light. These are things that I've talked about a lot, like in my exposed workshop and things like that, where we talk about how to do exposures better. But the bottom line is, if you have no shadow mood, and what I mean by that is you can have all the light in the world, but if you don't have rich, gradual shadows bringing the drama that you're feeling into that scene, things are going to fall apart. We'll talk about more of this, and there's a lot of videos about this on my YouTube channel. The second thing that makes your photo suck is you have no subject. And I can't tell you how many times I've been in classes and doing portfolio reviews, you know, or I've done, you know, people can get uh, like private one-on-one -on -one classes from me on my site and looking at their stuff. And I see a photo and, you know, it's hard sometimes as a critic because I don't want to sound pretentious. I don't want to sound, um, especially the newer photographers, I'm always trying to look for something positive in their photo if they want me to review a photo. And I think that's important for instructors, but it's also important to be honest. It's also important not to pretend like, oh, this is an amazing photo. You're doing great at everything you're doing. There's nothing you need to improve. First of all, that's never the case. There's always something to improve. Second of all, it's, it's, not, it's disingenuous if someone's trying to learn. I like people complimenting my work. That makes us all feel good. But if we're talking to someone experienced. So there's a difference. You don't want to be that person that never is satisfied, right? You're always going to look at something, whether it's your grandma's knitting or your friend's photo, and you're going to be like, oh, that's really nice. But do you think you should have used a different color? Do you think maybe there's too much red? Like, don't be that person that's always critical. But when you're talking to someone who's an expert, who's you want to learn from, make sure you're being open and not being defensive. Because I've gone through times in my photography especially online, because we're also toxic online. It's a, it's a difficult thing to step out of. And I try to do that. And, and, and it's hard to listen sometimes online because they're not, the comments aren't necessarily from people you respect. Oftentimes they're from people that are just putting down others to build themselves up. They're laughing at people's work. And this is something I, I don't tolerate 
in the shadow hackers group. People can post a photo and a lot of times I'll see a photo posted and it's not great. And if they really want feedback, right? If you're posting in a group like the shadow hackers group, you should expect feedback. But if I see someone just mocking a photo, being like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you posted that. That's embarrassing. And I see this so much in large photo groups. And I'm sure you've had to, and you've probably left some groups over this where it's just trolls and you go to look at their profiles and they're not even good photographers themselves. They're not that experienced, or maybe they're not even photographers. They're literally just there to bring people down so they can, I guess, feel good about themselves. And so it really is sad to see that And I've certainly had my moments of defensiveness online, and it's hard because of that. But it's also hard if you're in that mode, in a defensive mode, to filter, hey, this is real critique from somebody who actually has experience. So in-person critique, critique from someone you know and trust with experience is always better because there's a rapport there, and we can be honest. But I can't say how many times I've looked at a photo and been like, okay, what's your subject? And the student or the person I'm talking to has been like, well, what do you mean? It's this. And I'm like, well, what's that? Well, that's part of the scene. It's, it's, I'm like, no, but my eye's drawn to that. So, or, or a lot of times I've asked people, what's your subject? And you need to look, start looking at your photos and ask to this. Do you have one subject? Because if you don't, that's probably why your photos suck. I'm just putting this out there brutally honest. I learned this pretty early on from other photo courses. Um, but even though it's a, a deceptively simple tip, it seems like obviously, yeah, there has to be a subject. No, there has to be a subject, one. And this is true 99.9% of the time. I can't really think, I don't know if I could find one of my photos that I'm like, this is good. Or one of my photos that wanted a competition that didn't have a subject. This is a rule almost to live by. I know we say like, there's no rules, it's art. Yes, but these are guides, and some of the guides that we call rules are very important, and you will n- never master photography and get out of this inconsistency where sometimes photos are good and sometimes they suck, and you don't really know why, and it, and it feels crappy because you don't really know why that's happening. That's something I've really been able to put together in the Shadow Hackers uh, live workshops that I do is trying to give people the tools they need to know why a photo worked and why it didn't, because that's an incredibly powerful thing. And so what I'm talking about today in these bullet points, you have no shadow mood, right? There's no richness to your shadow. Your shadows just aren't dramatic. They're not exciting. They're not leading the eye. Number one, you don't have a subject. Now, it could be that there's no subject. Everything's just kind of cluttered and all over the place, but it could be that you have two or three subjects. And when I say subject, I mean, it's a dominant force that draws the eye through the scene. Now, you might take a photo that has two subjects, right? It's like, that doesn't work. There has to be a focal point. All the rest of the photo is supporting cast. It's not to say there can't be more than one person, right? Your subject might be this family, right? The Smith family is my subject. There's more than one person in that group, but it's one single focal point, okay? My subject is a group of elk on the hill. That's a subject. Are there subjects within your subject? Yes, but you have a subject. When it falls apart, I said, you say, oh, no, my subject is the beautiful girl, but it's also the guy water skiing in the background, right? Now you have two subjects. I thought it was cool the way, like, the water skier was going by in the background, and he was doing a jump through the air, and I also had a pretty girl in a swimsuit posing for me. Okay, maybe. But in most cases, you end up with two subjects. And the, the eye can't decide. And when the viewer's eye, if you don't know where the viewer's eye is going right? Because you're the artist. You have to control where the viewer's eye is going. 
if I f shoot in camera right and edit correctly, the viewer's eye is going to go where I wanted it to first. And then it's going to explore the rest of the scene in the supporting cast. So that's a huge one. Number three, your photo just isn't interesting. And this is kind of one of these hard things that's tough sometimes, right? And this is something that I've learned a lot about as a street photographer. Because you go out and you're on a walk on the pier, for example, or you're in a new place that's exciting, a new culture, maybe just really great light happening in your, in your town that night. And you feel that emotion, right? You have an emotion you're trying to convey. And so you'll see the pattern in all of these tips that we see something, we're out with our camera and we see something and it's, it's, it's animating us. It's exciting us. It's giving us an emotion. And we're trying, our job is then to convey the emotion we're feeling that means something to us and find a way to make that visible to others. And so sometimes we feel something, but you take a photo and it's just like, how many street photos have you seen of just a person walking across the road, right? And yes, you can talk about space and composition and line. This is something that in, in 2013 with my master workshop, uh, my video workshop that we did, the Photo Perfect series, which is still on my site. And I think it's a great workshop. And we talk about with different photographers, you know, all the way to going and finding people like Rodney Lowe, who are landscape masters, talking to Kim Whitmire, portrait icons. And of course, I was teaching a lot of what I knew. What is it that makes a great photo? And we were exploring that concept in this workshop that I spent months and months putting together. And I think it came out really good. And a lot of what it came down to is like, there's these aesthetics, there's the tone, there's the line, the composition, the framing, all this stuff, the, the crop, all these things are important. And those elements that we explored were the artistic and the aesthetic properties of what makes a good photo. But what's hard to define in just a little video or a podcast like this is the emotion. Because only you feel the emotion that you feel when you're taking that photo. If you don't feel anything, there's really a problem, right? If you're like, oh, I'm gonna take this, it's a good photo. I feel nothing, but I think it's a good photo because the composition is great or, or, or the tone is really cool. There's a lot of shadow. You can have that shadow mood. You can have that composition. You can have, you know, somebody walking across the street in the snow with an umbrella, even though it might be cliche, it might be a well-executed image. But if you're not conveying any emotion, there's a problem. And if in general, the photo is not interesting, right? If you're like, oh, this is really cool. I'm in Japan. There's all these people walking down the street. I'm going to take a photo of that. It's sunset and the light's really cool. And that the photo comes out and no one is really excited about it. No one likes it. No one wants, wants it on their wall. Why? Maybe it's because it's just not that interesting. Maybe you were excited when you were there. But really, there's not a strong focal point in the photo. There's no passion. There's no emotion. There's no sadness. There's no joy. There's nothing that really is making people connect with the emotion that you felt. Most of us, all of us take photos and they're just not that interesting. Digital has really done this because we're taking a lot more photos. Like I mentioned in the news when we were talking about Polaroids and film and stuff like that, we, we tend to put a lot more thought into a photo that costs us a lot more. So, if, you know, out of 100 photos, we get more, I think, when we're shooting film, once we know how to shoot with it, right? We get more photos that are portfolio worthy because they cost us more. We're thinking more. We take more time. When we're shooting digital out of 100 photos, maybe we get one that's portfolio worthy. And that's okay. I think it's always good to improve our ratio. And a lot of times that just means pressing the shutter less. But there are conditions and situations where you might want to press the shutter more and then select the best. Sports could be an example of this, right? But I've always been a fan of shooting less to get more results 
I rarely shoot on burst mode, even in active situations, at least not on high burst mode. Sometimes if I have a, a subject that's moving and stuff like that, I'll shoot on a low burst mode. But you know how rare it is that I shoot at like 15 frames a second? Like literally never. I don't even want that many files to have to go through. Now, everybody has their style and their perspective, and that's okay. It's okay to get photos that aren't interesting. We just have to understand that a lot of times when our photo sucks, it's because it just wasn't interesting for whatever reason. And this goes on to point number four, you're photographing everything. We're going out with this mindset of, I'm going to take a, a photo walk and I want all these cool photos of this cool place. I'm going to show everybody everything when no one really wants to see it in a world where there's a billion photos uploaded to Instagram per day, right? We're being saturated with imagery. So we need to do something that's beautiful and, and that, that has impact, that has emotion, that has shadow. And so what I do is I, I try to not photograph everything. And I think street photography is a great exercise for this because you go out and at first you're like kind of in this photo walk mentality, click, 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 click. And then the more you do it and the more you, you see your hard drive filling up with photos that simply aren't that interesting, you start thinking more. And I think even if you're a portrait photographer or a commercial photographer, being a street photographer as practice just for your own joy I think street photography is not only important to document history and culture and to not be afraid of taking photos of important things, but it really, I think, helps us to, to look for interesting things, to realize, yeah, this is just a photo of cars driving down the street. Maybe it's a cool sunset. Maybe it's the middle. Of, it's just not interesting. We're photographing everything. And I know one point is kind of leading into the other here, but the fifth is standards do keep getting higher. And this goes back to we're photographing everything. In the past, when photography was was young, when it was difficult, when it cost to take photos, people weren't taking a billion photos a day in the entire world, right? Because you had film, you had developing, like we, even the amateur and the family was taking less photos. There's probably more photos taken every day now than in a decade in the 80s, the 70s, the 60s. Now, I, I can't quantify that number. I'm just kind of throwing that out there because the numbers are so high now. But because of there's so many photos, the standards do keep getting higher. And that's why when I put stuff in my portfolio, I don't just load a portfolio of, I went for a photo walk. Here's 150 images. I'm going to challenge myself to find the best one or two or three or five, right? And show only those. Because that's also going to challenge me to slow down and actually think about it. I can take 100 photos fast or five photos slow and if I take the five photos slow, I might end up with three really good ones. And the hundred photos I took fast, I'll be lucky to get one really good one. You see what I'm saying? Photographing everything fast doesn't make our photos better because standards are higher now than ever. And we have to convey our emotions and connect with people's souls in whatever it is we're photographing. So why do your photos suck is a recap. They have no shadow and mood and drama. You don't have one subject. You don't have a subject. Your photo just isn't interesting. And, it, and that particular photo is probably never going to be, no matter how much you edit it. It's okay. That's, it's okay to admit that. You're photographing everything and too fast, right? You're going out and I, I need to go to 10 places today and photograph when we should be saying, hey, I'm going to go to one place. I'm going to go to, I'm going to go for a walk and street photograph tonight. But my one place, my goal, my focus for the night is, is the pier. I'm going to see if I can get a good photo of the pier, Right. And standards keep getting higher, connecting all of this together, that we have to bring all of those pieces into one. And I think if we do that, 
everything is going to get substantially, substantially better in your work. Just like when I say, hey, if you shoot film, if you get an old vintage Polaroid and you know it's costing you two bucks to shoot, if you shoot large format, that's kind of why I like the Polaroid cameras, not these digital hybrids that are taking a crappy digital photo that might be good if you shoot it right, but the sensor is kind of crappy and it's just not great. Whereas when I shoot with a Polaroid, it's like shooting like aesthetically. That's, I think, why there's a magic to like the Polaroid SX70 is that it's optical and especially the older ones, you know, like the SX70 camera, even though that film is really slow and there are conversions you can get to make it work, uh, the meter work with Polaroid 600, but I, I haven't done that to mine and I don't think I'd want to do a permanent change. I'd want something that I could kind of go back and forth on. And so I've, I've looked into that, but at the moment I just use the SX70 film on that. And it, it's essentially medium format, right? Because it's not a digital print. It's actually projecting that image... And it's a little bit larger than a 120, like a Hasselblad negative. So it's it's between medium and large format, and it gives an aesthetic to match. And so again, I, I actually really am loving shooting the SX-70, even though I do very few because it's expensive. I not only enjoy the experience, it's a great conversation piece because it's an amazing camera. I will put, like I said, a photo in the show notes over at profotoshow.com. So you can just, in, in case you don't know the camera I'm talking about, and it makes me think. So things like that that make me slow down are actually an investment. I say, oh, I'm going to buy this. I'm going to pay $150 for a vintage Polaroid camera, and then I'm going to pay three bucks a shot to use it. Okay. And it's like, well, that's stupid when I have a digital camera. That's a waste of money. But it's not. Not only because I'm a podcaster and a YouTuber and I can make content about this. As a photographer, it's not a waste of money for me to do that because it makes me raise my standards, Right. Point five. It prevents me from photographing everything. Point four. It helps me make sure my photographing photograph is interesting. Point three. It makes me focus on my subject and making sure I'm getting it right. Point two. And it makes me look for bold light and shadows that are really going to give me something interesting. Point one. Doing things like this that cost us and make us slow down make us better photographers when we have a digital camera in hand because they remind us of all these points that make our photos suck and how to fix them. I could probably come up with 10 other points of why our photos suck and how to not have sucky photos. But I think these five points are good today. And I hope you guys found them useful. Please send me an email, profotoshow at gmail.com or go to the show notes, to the comments, et cetera. Everything starts at the show notes over there in terms of, of where to go. And tell me what you think about today's tips and about why your photos suck. Because I'm not here to be like, you suck as a photographer, right? I've thought of that about myself many, many times. And usually when I tell myself, I suck at this, right? I tell myself, you know, I, I, I did weddings for a lot of years. I did senior portraits and they were good. But if you actually put me like in a situation with a fashion model and say, hey, we need this great session based on these clothes, focusing on this brand, I suck. That's why I started doing my, my fashion uh, portrait sessions that you've seen a lot of my Instagrams and stuff like that, where it's not a paid session. I'm working with models and usually mid mutually, right? With, with models that are, that are newer, that they want practice also. And I learned so much about portraits from a year of just doing that, right? I did a lot of free sessions, but I got a lot of great stuff in my portfolio and I learned a lot and I actually want to go back and do more of it. I've just been really busy the past couple of years. Street photography, another thing. I realized my street photography sucks. I'm not confident with it. It's not exciting. It's not interesting. And that annoys me. It pisses me off that I'm not good at that. I know that you can't be the best photographer in every category. 
that's not realistic. It's kind of that jack of all trades syndrome. But I am a photographer and I want to be good in every genre because I know that whatever genre I'm focusing on in my career at a given time, right, I'm going to be better. So if my focus is portraiture, I'm going to be good at that. But it's, if my focus is, is, is beautiful scenes of portraits and fashion seats, it's also going to help my video, right? One of my things that I've been wanting to do lately, my video production skills and editing have gotten pretty good. And remember, video is photography. It's, it's still photography. It's just not stills. But all the principles apply exactly the same in almost every area. And so because I do YouTube, because I enjoy doing video, because it's a challenge that not as many people are doing great video, I've really wanted to do a music video. And, and shoot a music video and, you know, maybe find a new band or something like that. Because even even down here where I live in Mexico, you know, Latin music videos, you've seen them. I mean, there's huge production value put into these and they spend big, big bucks. And so w one of these times when I find like a, a, a young band that's new, that's good, maybe that's local, but they're good because people may actually make a living. Like there's way more people making a living on music here than there is in the North and the United States because every every party has music, right? If you're a talented singer, if you play the guitar, like you don't have to make it big with a record label to be paying your bills. If you're, if you're a good singer, if you're good on the trumpet, if you're good on the guitar, if you have a good voice and that's what your passion is, you're probably working in a mariachi band. You're, you're, you're singing at parties. You may not be getting rich, but there's a lot of opportunity here for you too because they do really value the arts down here in Latin America. And even though they might get paid less than what we would be consider a high-paying job in, in England and in Europe and the United States, they can do very well. And so there's a lot of, of, of really great bands and singers and stuff like that. And I would, I would love to find somebody down here, down in central Mexico area to just collaborate with somebody that was chill and cool and that we could just do a really great music video. So they had it. And also so I could build my portfolio because in the past few years, I've just been wanting to do things that challenge me, right? I, I know I'm never as good as I should be. And I always want to improve that. And I think, I think that's a good mindset to have, but I think also we need not say my photos suck, my photos suck because you had a bad day. Right. Remember, your photos are always going to improve if you come back to these points that we just talked about. Even if you're new, you have a lot of experience, you have a master's, you just started, you just bought a camera. If you apply these things, your photos are going to improve and they're going to get amazing. We will all always take photos that suck. And that's how we learn. So let me guys know what you think. Let's go to our pick of the week. That's a wrap for the main topic here on Pro Photography Show for June 20th, 2023. My pick of the week is actually a pretty simple one. Maybe it's not exciting. I picked this up a couple years ago after a lot, long time of stalling, and it's the ProGrade card readers. And this is a high speed, like there's, you go and you buy a little Lexard card reader and cost 10 bucks and it works fine. But what I found is when I actually was going out doing sessions and stuff like that, and I was coming home with a full card or two maybe, right? Maybe I had a one camera I was doing video on, another camera I was shooting a portrait session on, and I want to copy all this stuff over. It was so slow and annoying, and the cheap little card readers work fine. They're just slow. And so I said, no, I'm going to find it, because this thing had great reviews, and I went and bought this ProGrade SD card reader, and this thing just works better. It has faster transfer speeds, and the reviews kind of speak for it, so I will link it 
in the show notes, of course, as always. This particular one, there's a few versions of it. So most of my, I think all my cameras now use uh, SD cards. Um, my old Canon 5D Mark II that I've converted to infrared, I don't use a lot. That still uses uh, CF cards. Um, so obviously, you know, you want a multi-card reader around. I still have a, a, the, the little basic card readers that take the micro and that take the big because my drone then has the micro SD. And so there's different versions of this ProGrade uh, card readers. But the one I got was the dual SD UHS-2. They're fast. They have like a magnet on the bottom, which is actually really handy. Um, the cable's removable, at least on mine. I think it is on all of them. So that's that's great because you can change your cable length, your cable type. The transfer rate is a USB 3.2 Gen 2. So you can get up to 10 gigs a second from both cards simultaneously. And this is the thing, is it, it it's really high speed. So you can actually put two cards in this and not suddenly everything just like is super slow. In fact, usually when I'm copying data, it's limited by the speed of the drive I'm copying to, right? If I'm copying direct to my RAID, because those are spinning drives and they're obviously slower. If I'm copying to an internal uh, solid state drive, it's going to be faster. But the point is I'm, I've, I was bottlenecking myself and these things are under a hundred bucks. They're like, you know, I think right now this is about 80 bucks and it's like, oh, that's a lot for a card reader. Yeah. But if you're putting a lot of data on these cards, you, maybe you're doing video sometimes you're doing a lot of raw files on these high resolution cameras we have now. It's, it's a pain to wait for it. And this just made my life easier. I can dump one or two SD cards at the same time. I don't have to wait so I can quickly dump my, my bag down grab camera A, grab camera B, stick the cards in, copy them to where they go, Go, it goes fast, I put the cards away, I'm done. You know, now I can synchronize my folder in Lightroom or Capture One or wherever I'm working, you know, get previews built, et cetera, and I'm done. So that's my pick for this week is the ProGrade SD Reader because even though it's a little bit expensive for a card reader, ever since I've bought that, that's what I've used and I've never regretted that card reader. It's done really well by me. Okay, you guys, I think that is all. It feels like I went long because I'm, I've gotten so used to making videos on YouTube and I need to try and cut those down to 10 to 15 minutes. And I can't, we can't talk about near as much on those. That's, that's why podcasting is, is so cool. I think I've kept this about to an hour or so. I think we've talked about some really fun things. Let me know what you guys think in the comments. Please send me some feedback. Help me spread the word on the podcast because we're pretty much starting from zero here. Just trying to get the subscribers out there and, and get back and get on the map as the Pro Photography Podcast again. So I appreciate you guys helping spread the word and getting that out there. And of course, if you want to check out all my latest products, presets, and workshops, please do head over to simeffects.com and it helps support the work I'm doing, the videos on the channel, the podcast, everything. It helps me keep experimenting and creating new stuff. And you can also, you'll also get there if you go to profotoshow.com. That will take you directly to the show notes page, all the links we talked about today, and all the related stuff, images and samples and things I told you I will put on the show notes. Those will be over at profotoshow.com. But it actually is the same site, just different parts of the site. And feel free to browse around and see what else I'm up to. There's a lot of resources actually on the blog, separate from the podcast feed on the site. There's a lot of recent articles and videos and stuff. So you can see all the, what I'm doing on my YouTube channel and my latest tips and, and hands-on editing videos and stuff like that over on the blog as well. Let me know what you think, and we will see you on the next Pro Photography Podcast. Be safe, keep shooting. We'll see you next time.